0: The views and opinions expressed during Eye and the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye and the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's I in the Triangle, a student run, student scripted, and student produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. All right, folks, tonight we've got an interview with former Governor James B. Hunt Jr. The good governor has joined us to talk about leadership in crises, North Carolina's history of perseverance through adversity, and the role of the state's governor. Afterwards, we have Nadia Romligan with two stories from North Carolina News Service voter map correction criticisms, and environmental research are the topic of the day. Stay tuned for them. All right, everybody, let's get this started. WKNC 88.1 is Eye on the Triangle now. I'm Aaron Kling, the WKNC 88.1's Eye on the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with former Governor James B. Hunt, Jr., North Carolina's 6th and and 71st Governor. Hello, Governor. Welcome to Eye on the Triangle. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Now, what's it like being a governor? The role is known by essentially everyone across the country, of course, but what's it really like to see the state from the governor's office?
1: Well, the governor's sort of in charge of the state. The governor works with all the other people, especially all the leaders who are in government and in the private sector. But being governor means that you have a responsibility to have the state help all of its people make progress, do all that you possibly can to make life good for folks and to treat them fairly.
0: Fantastic, what does progress look like?
1: Well, progress in North Carolina looks like people getting a good education, being safe, being able to get a good job and make a good living, provide for their family, having a good environment that is, uh, is good for your health, but also the green space and all of that, uh, the beautiful mountains and coast, being safe—all of those are things that that a governor thinks about and that other leaders think about too. And all of us have a responsibility to to help make those things happen.
0: Of course, would you say it's a difficult job at the best of times?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a difficult job, period. If you want to make if you want to do it well, and if you want to make progress, I, I grew up in a in a rural area where people didn't have many good jobs and didn't have a lot of good opportunities. And my goal was always to make things better for them, to make the schools better, but to make the roads better, to have more jobs, to have a chance for people to become the best they could be and to help them do that. So I was constantly driven by the feeling that North Carolina was way down in terms of income and opportunity but that we could do a lot better if we worked hard at it and were smart and helped each other.
0: What was North Carolina like back then?
1: Well, uh, I became governor. I became lieutenant governor in 1972, and that was, as you know, about 50 years ago. I became governor in 1976. I then was the first two-term governor to ever serve Before that, only governors had only served one four-year term, then went out after two terms, and then came back in for two more terms, something that nobody's ever done before. And we made great progress during all of that time, especially in improving education, bringing in more good jobs, and taking good care of the environment, and helping make progress in terms of fairness and opportunity. We did a lot of things to help African Americans and immigrants and others have a chance to become what they could be and should be, what God wants them to be, but they had not had that opportunity historically, and we had a lot of changing to do and making up to do, and I helped lead some of that, and I'm just so thrilled to see the progress North Carolina's made, but we've still got a long way to go.
0: What kind of barriers did you face while you were in office?
1: Well, there were the barriers of having the resources, having the money to to do things and uh, better ways to do things. And, of course, you always had to deal with things like disasters and just the regular problems of life that come along. And uh, that's why I was deeply involved in dealing with the hurricanes and natural disasters that we had during those years you
0: are referring to Hurricane Fran and Floyd.
1: Two of the worst we ever had in North Carolina. We'd had some before. uh, But Hurricane Fran and Floyd, Fran in in 1996 and Floyd in 1999, two of the worst hurricanes that this country's ever had. And it was a tremendous responsibility to, to protect people and to restore this state and to rebuild. And those are things that I'd love to talk with you about today.
0: I've been on my property, my family's property, and I've prepared for hurricanes then nothing like, like Fran and Floyd. But, you know, setting up a uh, scrap wood to keep windows covered or keep vents clear of, of water. What did you as a governor do to prepare as it was arriving? How did you handle the news that these hurricanes were heading towards your state?
1: Well, the first thing you do is you're listening to the news all the time. I think it was Hurricane Floyd that I became aware of when I was out of state at a national governor's conference, and they started reporting a hurricane coming off the coast of Africa. And they started reporting, you know, that it was building up, and it looked like it was going to be a bad one. It looked like it was headed toward North Carolina. And so I left the meeting early, came home. Uh, started meeting with all the people that are in charge of preparing. Uh, the first thing that you do is to get ready, ready to, to protect people, to keep them physically safe. Uh, and North Carolina has, has a, uh, a system for doing that. We have people who are in charge of that. You work closely to get ready for it, and then you have to be prepared to deal with it as the storm comes in. But the first thing you do is to be is to know that it's coming. Get your people in a safe place, protect them while the storm is coming through, and then you go back in and rescue them in the midst of a flood. And then you start a long, long rebuilding process.
0: Of course, were there any arguments uh, in in the house or, or or in your offices about whether the hurricane was not going to arrive or whether it would be possible to maybe not have to evacuate people or, or prepare as hard as you had to?
1: Well, you you, you watch it, but then you, the, these are life and, and, and death decisions. And that's why you, you have good information and you have uh, people who work in this area. The federal government people are under FEMA. In North Carolina, we have our Division of Emergency Management. So all of these people are getting ready for the uh, hurricane that is coming. Now we pre-station, especially water and food and oxygen and things of that sort that may be needed after the hurricane goes through. But So you're getting ready. You put things in place. And then, of course, the hurricane comes in, takes a while. Sometimes it goes through quickly. Sometimes it meanders around. And you have to be prepared immediately to rescue people. Uh, if they need physical rescue, I remember houses down in in, uh, in uh, Edgecombe County where people the flood went up to the to the attic, and people had to go up and come out of their attic and get in a rowboat to be rescued. And of course, oftentimes you have a loss of life, and we certainly did during those storms. Uh, but uh, so you're getting ready to rescue people. Then the very next thing you have to do is to is to start, and of course we have shelters that many people go to during those really t- rough times. Uh, and and uh, then you you uh, after the storm goes through, then you start picking up, cleaning up, uh, getting people back into their homes if they have their homes are still there, or start preparing a place for them to go to. Uh, that's the immediate uh, rescue and start to rebuild, but then comes the long, hard months and years to uh, rebuild and to get over the damage that was done. And in those storms, Fran and and, and uh, Floyd in the 1990s, yeah, we had tremendous damage. We had some towns that were almost destroyed. Uh, we had thousands and thousands of homes that were, that were destroyed or badly, badly damaged. Uh, in fact, we had over 5,000 that had to be, that were bought out. In other words, they could not, they were past damage. You couldn't go in and rebuild them or repair them. They just had to be completely bought out and new homes built for them. So those are the kinds of things that you do, but you have to do all of this. Um, being aware of, of the very, of the people, you their families, their children, their old folks, doing everything you can to help them with their health problems and their nutritional problems, uh, and 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 helping them look toward the future because uh, you've just been through all of this, and uh, and there's a, a you know people are, are likely to say. What, what are we going to do with uh, this great despair, There's great danger, and, and, and they don't know what the future is going to be. Where, where will I live? What can I do? And so what you have to do is to start getting ready to rebuild and to help hold their hands but provide food and, uh, and safety. And then after that comes the long, slow process of rebuilding communities. In many cases, new homes, uh, new businesses, new streets, cleaning up hog farms and and agriculture, and, and the, literally the, the rebuilding of things that are almost destroyed uh, and making a new future.
0: How do you battle that despair? You talk about these, these long hauls and, and having to dig in your heels and, and understanding that this issue isn't going to go away until you solve it. How do you battle despair in in your own cabinet or despair among the community, among the people you're trying to help?
1: Well, you do it as a leader, and there are many leaders, by talking about uh, what you're doing and what you're going to do to help them. You, of course, give you know the kind of tender care and, and, uh, and loving assurance of uh, friends and neighbors and members of the church or whatever. North Carolinians have been very good at this because we really do care, and we really have helped each other, and we've done, done some wonderful things. And North Carolina's had some of the worst hurricane uh, damage or storm damage of any state in the country over the years. But we've rallied from that. Uh, when, when Hurricane Floyd came through, when we got all the help that we could from the federal government, and as governor, I went to Washington, D.C. to to work with the Congress to get them to appropriate funds. I met with President Clinton, who was a friend of mine, but a man who cared about North Carolina and who had come to North Carolina during Hurricane Floyd. And I'd flown around with him in Marine One helicopter to see the shelters and the people who, who had been so badly damaged and who were frightened. And, uh, and I pushed him as hard as I could to get every dollar we could get. I almost broke his arm. Uh, it, uh, he wanted to do it, but he had to have it explained, and you had to, it took a lot of pushing. And I'm a pushy guy when it comes to helping the people of North Carolina. Uh, and we got tremendous help. We got tremendous help on a bipartisan basis from the Congress. Uh, Senator Jesse Helms and I had run against each other for the United States Senate. But we worked together to convince the members of the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate to provide tremendous funding for North Carolina to build back the state. Uh, and it took years to, to, to come back. We had to do some special things within the state. Uh, for example, uh, I called a special session of the of the legislature of North Carolina that had never been done for that kind of purpose but they came in and, and they were told the story of what had happened uh, i asked them to join me on a bus tour of the eastern part of the state where we'd had the damage so they saw it with their own eyes they heard uh their, the neighbors there tell about it uh and the legislature at my request uh Uh, appropriated $830 million to help rebuild places that had been damaged. This was just a small part of the total funding that we had to have, and I also asked the state agencies to find funds that they could get along uh, without for a year, and we put that money in. Uh, So we had a tremendous teamwork of people throughout state government and throughout the private sector and the churches and all of the helping agencies that pitched in to help the people of North Carolina who needed so much.
0: Now, a lot of people sometimes complain about the, the slow start that bureaucracy can have. How do you get those gears turning?
1: Well, there are a lot of, uh, one of the big problems has to do with, with homes that are damaged and need to be replaced. And the problem comes with, first of all, you have to, people have to go go out and do an estimate of how much damage there is. And if there's enough damage that the house needs to be replaced, uh, can't be rebuilt. Then somebody has to determine that. They have to estimate what it's going to take. Then you have to get people to come in and and bid to to do the work, and that takes a long time to get those bids and to get the work done, and then they have to find new places to go. Uh, during all those years that I was governor, uh, we, we did a lot of very creative and innovative things in terms of, uh, of, of setting up new processes uh, to do many of those things. We set up new funds uh, we convinced the federal government to put more money in than they'd ever done before. And I stayed on, on top of them. They, there's a group called FEMA, which is a federal emergency management uh, group. And I met with the head of FEMA every day in North Carolina. I called the people in Washington every day. I called the president every time I needed to. I wore them out, getting them to help North Carolina. But they they came through and we got a tremendous amount of, of help. And then there's there are places like Kenston, North Carolina, where the flooding was so bad that uh, that they lost their water system. Can you imagine your entire city water system being damaged so badly that you, you wouldn't have water? We had to put in a whole new water system for the city of Kenston. And other places had other big needs that had to be met But you you figure it out, you get good estimates of what it is, and then you find the funds wherever you have to go to do it and get people to work together on that. That's half of it, getting people to work together uh, and help each other. The the people of North Carolina care about each other. They they care through their clubs and their churches and, and all kinds of ways. And I found that when I called on them to do big things to help each other. They always did it and did amazing things.
0: During the crisis of these hurricanes, did you see people banding together and helping each other out or growing more combative, digging in their heels and refusing to help each other out?
1: No, no, the, the people do not get combative. They, they, they become more helpful. The, my experience always was that people would really pitch in. Sometimes, uh, uh, when their own property was was uh, in peril. Uh, but they'd be involved in, uh, uh, in a rescue squad or a fireman's group or whatever that was out there saving people and helping them. And without, I don't know if a single time when people didn't pitch in and go the extra, extra mile to help each other, and the state of North Carolina did it, Uh, We have a rainy day fund that is created to help out in things like this. But you have to pitch in and work hard, and it takes a long time to rebuild and come back. You think you snap your fingers and, you know, next week it's all right or certainly by next year. No. A lot of times when you have to rebuild these homes and rebuild these communities and rebuild roads and other things, it takes years to do it. And people get impatient they get upset and they start complaining and blaming each other sometimes but you have to you have to appeal to people to to uh, be patient and keep working at it and keep helping each other and eventually you can come back and we have certainly done it in North Carolina
0: for anybody facing situations like this what is your advice to them as a leader
1: well my advice to them is to to be prepared for disasters, uh, to be prepared to respond uh, for human life and property and, and their future. But it is also to, to do all you can to uh, prevent more damage than you have to have. For example, we've got a lot of places where we know we're going to have floods. When these hurricanes come in, the rivers are going to rise. And uh, I remember on my farm, we had about 20 or 25 inches of rain in one, two or three weeks during that flood, of the, during the Hurricane Floyd. Uh, there are going to be times when that kind of thing happens, and you have to be prepared to deal with that. There are also places that are so flood-prone that it's going to happen again and again. And in some of those places, we should not build homes, and we should not put property uh, at risk and have to go back in and redo it every year because it happens every year. Uh, during my years as governor, sometimes I would go to the same community and see the same homes and the same streets flooded, and I said, well, isn't that where I came the last time? Why do we continue to build houses there? Why don't we just not build back there, make that a grassy area. You can have a park area or something of that sort. Build these homes in higher areas or build the homes up. You can, you can raise them up, and we've done that across many parts of North Carolina. In any event, one of the biggest jobs of a governor and other leaders, public and private, is to deal with disasters to protect people, and then to get smart about trying to have building codes and uh, plan in in the buildings and infrastructure so that we don't come as damaged when the floods come along and we have future disasters. We're going to always have some. We have to be prepared to not lose as much property and and have, have people be as safe as they can, and then if it happens again, uh, be prepared to help them again, sir. Do you have any
0: thoughts on the California wildfires currently occurring?
1: Thoughts about the wildfires? Yes. Well, uh, that's not an area that I'm 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 knowledgeable about, but it would certainly seem to me that there's are certain areas where they need to not let areas that are apt to catch fire and to and you know become so explosive in the undergrowth, I guess, is the term. But another but another thing to do is not build in some of those places. There are many places where people are building houses where they ought not to be building them. They ought not to be on some of those hillsides that we see on television. You know, that's, those are local decisions that people have to make, but we ought to be making more decisions consistent with what makes sense for the long run rather than just the short run.
0: Thank you very much for coming on I Am the Triangle, Governor.
1: Well, I'm delighted to do so. Uh, and I look forward to uh, a class I'm going to be talking to at NC State. Uh, Mr. Gavin Smith is the leader of that class and he is one of our experts on on uh, disaster recovery, and uh, he is uh, teaching a class at at North Carolina State University. Uh, and it's 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 really a class entitled the Survey of Natural Hazards and Disasters. It's a three-credit-hour graduate seminar that studies these natural hazards and disasters. And part of it is located in the Department of Public Administration at NC State, my alma mater. Part of it's in engineering, where they uh, look at ways we can we can build things so that we aren't. Uh, subject to uh, having them destroyed as much. And then there's the whole matter of design which is located in the Department of Landscape Architecture. So I will be speaking to a class there at uh, I think at about 420 uh, on the 3rd Tuesday, the 3rd of December uh, at uh, Burns Auditorium in the College of Design. So anybody wants to come and Hear about uh, our experiences, uh, or is invited to come.
0: And that was Governor James Baxter Hunt, Jr., the former governor of the state of North Carolina. And I'm Aaron Kling of I and the Triangle from WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening.
2: Some good government advocates say new congressional maps redrawn by state legislators still are partisan, despite the fact that a state court has approved use of the maps in 2020 elections. The tradition in North Carolina is that legislators draw their own maps. They often say they know their districts best. However, Jane Pinsky of the North Carolina Coalition for Lobbying and Government Reform points out the system is inherently flawed. The fairest process would be to have a commission
3: that was not legislators draw the map because it is impossible for people to turn off the part of their brain that knows the partisan makeup of a district or
2: an area or a town. She says legislators don't always know the changes their districts are undergoing. Last month, a state court ordered legislators to redraw new congressional district maps, arguing the maps were gerrymandered and violated the state constitution. Pinsky notes that while map drawing is supposed to be transparent and is live-streamed online, it's often difficult for citizens to know exactly what legislators are doing and why. And even as someone who knows and understands the maps relatively well, um, it's still impossible to tell what they're doing. She says now is the time for North Carolinians to talk to their legislators about reforming the redistricting process.
3: Don't email, don't tweet, don't call, sit down and write an old fashioned letter. It can be three sentences, but When legislators get 1,000, 2,000 pieces of email a day, they're not going to have time to read them, but they don't get that many letters. And a letter, even a postcard, is something that will get their attention.
2: Pinsky adds that legislators should be asking communities if congressional maps truly reflect their districts. Several states recently have introduced bills to reform redistricting, but none has gained traction. Scientists meet this week in Cary to debate whether the EPA's current standards for particulate matter and ozone air pollution are robust enough to protect public health. The Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee will also hear public testimony about the air pollution standards. John Bachman is a former associate director for science and policy at the EPA Office of Air Quality Planning and Standards. He says every five years, the agency reviews the standards for six air pollutants.
3: Standards for particulate matter were part of the original Clean Air Act and they were established in 1971. They had been revised periodically and they revised in a big way in 1987 to change the definition of particulate matter to just particles that you can breathe.
2: The committee is also accepting written comments. The EPA is expected to make a decision on changing the standards sometime next year. Millions of Americans live in counties where breathing the air is linked to increased risk of lung cancer, early death, and other health problems. Bachman points out that particulate matter is so fine, there's no way to avoid inhaling it.
3: EPA has previously determined there is a causal relationship between fine particles and, and mortality, hospital admissions, and some other effects.
2: Bachman adds that because of the Clean Air Act, some regions have made noticeable improvements in air quality.
3: I'll tell you, much of the eastern United States has seen a dramatic improvement in air quality. And if you look at pictures of what the sky used to look like in Ohio, especially near the higher River valley, in the 80s and compared to today, there's no comparison. It's much, much better. I drive through there all the time.
2: An independent panel of scientists recently concluded that the EPA's current standard of 12 micrograms per cubic meter for fine particulates isn't enough to protect human health. But Bachman predicts the EPA is likely to maintain that the current standards are sufficient. For North Carolina News Service, I'm Nadia Romlagan.
0: Another big thank you to Governor Hunt for coming in to speak with us. As climate change continues to worsen storms globally, remember to stay aware of where you are buying property and what regional risks entail. Be aware that the term 100-year flood, it's not literal. It's a term of statistics. It's completely possible for an area to have multiple unprecedented floods within a 100-year period. Stay dry and stay safe, everybody. Thank you to our live audience who tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right, if you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants who would like to become a part of the Eye in the Triangle team. Live in the Triangle area? Want your story on Eye in the Triangle? Shoot us an email. Tonight's episode of Eye in the Triangle can be enjoyed in a podcast format through Transistor and through WKNC's Twitter. Our opening music tonight was Safe Sax by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed to Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial 3.0 license. Stay tuned for your usual program of amazing indie music, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.